Amen. Well, if you would uh, take out your Bibles, if you're using a pew Bible, we're going to be on page 1255. We're moving into Second or First Thessalonians chapter two, uh, as Paul begins to talk about his ministry to the Thessalonians. One of the things, even before we read, that we must understand or maybe even remember, is that Paul has given back a thanksgiving. Uh, to God for the faithfulness of the believers there in Thessalonica. Remember, he commends them for their uh, imitation of him and of the Lord. He says, you have imitated me. You have imitated our God. You have walked in Christ's likeness. Your witness to your community, your witness to the other believers has been so profound, so holy, so righteous, that even the other churches in Asia Minor are talking about how not only you preach the gospel, proclaim the gospel, how the gospel sounds forth from your church, but also how you live out the gospel. Remember we talked about last week how we ought to be jealous for that prayer in regards to First Presbyterian Church Dillon. How we ought to say and ought to pray that our Lord would set us on fire for the gospel in such a way that not only would we proclaim it, but that we would live it. And not only that we would proclaim it and live it, but that we would do it in such a way, do these things in such a way that people would talk about, would speak about how much First Presbyterian Dillon loves the Lord, honors the Lord, loves His Word, and lives out His Word. Well, one of the things that Paul is going to spend much time on in chapter 2 is this idea of what a good, pleasing ministry looks like there in Thessalonica. You know, one of the things that we've mentioned uh, so far in our journey through uh, this first letter, I think we're on Sermon 5. Yes, that's what the bulletin says. Sermon 5 of this letter is we've constantly mentioned how Thessalonica is a little bit of a, a, a hub for the known world. That all of these people and all of these cultures are represented because it, it, it's somewhat of a, uh, a sailor's town, if you will. It's, it's a business hub for the known world. So all of these sailors and tradesmen, they would travel to Thessalonica so that they might barter and, and do business together. And so all of these cultures are represented, which means all of these gods are represented. And Paul says, to stick out in your community, you must serve the one true and living God. That you must be a a, a Christian who serves not many gods, but one God, always and forever. And yet, at the same time, not only in Thessalonica are, are all of these different gods, all of these different cultures that he has to rebuke and and speak of in such a way that that the people, the Christians there in Thessalonica would be aware that they would not be led astray. He also says here in chapter 2 that there are false teachers of the Christian faith here in the midst. And so he's going to spend much time trying to draw a distinction between him and the apostles and these false teachers. And one of the ways that he is going to do this is he's going to say that the life of the believer cannot contradict the message of the believer. That if one is to speak Christ, proclaim Christ, claim Christ as their own, they must live as Christians. They will know we are Christians by the way that we love. Isn't that one of the old hymns that we used to sing? 
And, and that is a, a driving force here within the Apostle Paul's first letter to the Thessalonian believers. Even in the way that he commands them to imitate me. Even in the way they, that he gives thanksgiving that they have imitated him and the Lord Jesus well, is he is saying, not only have you proclaimed Christ, but like me, you have lived out Christ. And so he's going to draw this distinction between him and these false teachers by saying that their message and their lives contradict one another. And that shouldn't be surprising to us. Not only did we see that in our journey through the letter to the Colossians many years ago, or even our journey in the letter of Galatians uh, a little while back, but, but you think about that most famous sermon in the Gospels the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus teaches His disciples. You remember as we were going through the Gospel of Matthew early on in my preaching ministry here, when we reached chapters 5-7, through which are the Sermon on the Mount, you might recall how we said that Jesus takes His disciples to the very top of the mountain. But as He speaks there to His disciples on the top of the mountain, it creates a an amphitheater, so to speak, so that the Pharisees and the religious leaders and the crowds, they're standing on the bottom of the mountain and they can hear every single thing that Jesus is saying. And what's the theme of the Sermon on the Mount? You have heard that a Christian lives this way, but I'm here to tell you that a real Christian lives this way. You remember how that looks, right? The religious leaders, they pray with all of these big words on the corners of the streets so that people might look at them and say, boy, don't they sound holy. But I tell you, a real Christian is the one who will steal away with the Father in secret. He says, you have heard that fasting is to be done uh, publicly and out loudly. I know I just created a word. Out loudly so that everybody can say, look how holy they are. They're hungry and they're, they're depriving themselves of food so that they might seek after Christ. And he says, if you're fasting, no one should know. But you should wash yourself, brush your hair, brush your teeth, go about your day, and you should walk close with Jesus one-on-one so that you might cling to the throne of mercy in prayer and in fasting. And so you understand, right, that there's constantly been this idea of Pharisaicalism. The Pharisees, they like to do it for all the pomp and circumstance. The Pharisees like to do it so that they might be patted on the back, so that their name might be famous. But a real Christian, Jesus says, is one who is humble. A real Christian is one who is gentle and lowly, as Christ is gentle and lowly. A real Christian, his actions does not contradict his message. And so with that in mind, let us read the first 12 verses of chapter 2 as Paul spends time showing us really what a a, a ministry that's pleasing to God looks like. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, As you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God, 
who tests the hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God for it. Now, very simply, I want to walk through this text and draw your attention to a number of different things. It starts there uh, in verse 1 where Paul writes, For you yourselves... No. Now, if you are to uh, know any sort of proper grammar, I don't claim to know much proper grammar. That's why I use online databases and proofreaders. But we know that you yourselves is not the proper way to speak or to even write. But Paul is using these two phrases, you and yourselves, to say something along the lines of, You know as you know. He's bringing an emphasis. He's calling your attention. He's drawing their minds back to their own experiences where Paul and the other apostles are there before the believers in Thessalonica and their ministry to them, as he says at the end of verse 1, was not in vain. So what Paul is saying is you know because you've experienced our ministry that our ministry to you did not serve no purpose. There was a purpose in the reason in which we came. It was not futile, but we labored among you and we saw much fruit born for the kingdom. And in fact, he tells us three ways in which he labored amongst them. He tells us three ways in which his ministry and the apostles' ministry there in Thessalonica was not empty but full of gospel success. And he says first in verse 2 that a pleasing ministry is one that is willing to suffer. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of such conflict. Now here it is that you have to understand that as as he is saying that they were willing to suffer, he's also saying that we have already suffered. As we know, because we have the the perks of knowing the narrative in the Acts of the Apostles, Acts 15, there is the first general assembly of the Presbyterian church. Okay? Amen. Uh, So we have the first general assembly of the Presbyterian church at the Jerusalem Council, and there is a massive debate going on within the church. Are we to preach the gospel to the Gentiles? And if we are, 
At what point do they have to follow the Old Testament law? Well, after this heated debate and conclusion of the debate, remember, Paul is sent out with a message to the Gentiles. He is to preach a message of salvation by faith and by faith alone to the Gentile regions. And so he travels. He travels on this second missionary journey down the coast of the Aegean Sea through Philippi and ultimately to Thessalonica. And he's saying, already we have suffered. Already we have been mistreated. Already we have been spitefully talked against. We could scratch at the original language here. Of course, it's Greek because it's in the New Testament. And it, and it screams that we have received physical abuse. We have been verbally exalted, assaulted. We have been treated roughly and cruelly. And yet, at the very same time, we are willing to do it all again so that we might preach the message of the gospel to you. That's exactly what he is going to say later on in this very text where he is talking about this laboring, this plotting both day and night. And even he speaks about how they are being tent makers because the Thessalonian believers can't afford to pay him for his services to preach. He says, listen, I'll make tents all night and preach all day if that's what it means that I can preach here and see the sanctifying power of the Spirit, the saving power of the Spirit working amongst you. And so he says very clearly, we have been spitefully treated, we have been verbally assaulted, and yet our response has been prayer, preaching, and worship. Prayer, preaching, and worship. We have not changed our message, we have not quit praying, and we have not quit singing. You remember that scene, right, in Acts chapter 16, I think it's verse 25. They're sitting there in the jail cell, and what are they found doing in the midst of their persecution? They're praying and they're singing. Sadly, we can't get most of our people in our church to open their mouths and sing hymns in a comfortable room. And yet, what we have here in the midst of all of our frustration and our suffering and our ailments and our pains with Paul is that he is doing the very things that he knows how to do. He knows how to preach the gospel of God. He knows to sing or he knows how to sing about the faithfulness of Christ. And he knows how to pray. He knows how to intercede. And that's what we see him doing. He says, we've already suffered. What's another season of suffering? We are committed only to teach and preach the gospel of God. Now you think about it, how he is distinguishing himself between, between the apostles and the false teachers. As Paul is talking about this commitment to preach and to teach and to pray and to worship, how would you think a false teacher would respond if they were to go through the suffering in which Paul and the other apostles have gone through? They would quickly run away. They would quickly begin to question God and say, why God are you allowing this? Or better yet, what I really think they would do is they would begin to change their message. They would begin to change their message to a message that is pleasing to the hearers. And yet, Paul says their exhortation, their message, look at verse 3, for our appeal, our message does not spring from error or impurity, or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, 
so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. Now, of course, there's a lot to unpack within those few verses, but you think about their message, their exhortation, their appeal. It's not from error. Again, you do the scratch and sniff of the original language there, and it's all this idea of deception, delusion, a twistingness of the gospel. Remember, throughout all of Paul's letters, he is going to confront the false gospel in which the false teachers proclaim. Not only are they, like in Galatians, trying to add man-made traditions to the gospel, but throughout his letters, he confronts this idea that that the gospel, that the grace of Jesus Christ is a, a license to sin. That's why he says that not only does our message not have any error, because it is the truth, we're preaching to you the Bible, the whole counsel of God, it also contains no impurities. That's a very distinct word that Paul uses, especially in his letter to Timothy, constantly throughout his letter to Timothy. It has a sexual immorality kind of emphasis to it. He's drawing your attention. We're proclaiming the whole counsel of God, which contains the grace and mercy that is found in Jesus Christ our Lord, but don't you think for one second that that gives you the license to sin. There's no trickery or fraud here. As our God is holy, He calls His people to holiness. But because His people, believers who call out to Christ in faith, cannot live a life of holiness on this side of glory, there is grace and there is mercy. And yet, you'll notice how he talks about this idea of deceit. This idea of deceit has a, a, an impacting kind of connotation to it because it's not only this idea of deceit as in we're not trying to debate and switch you with a gospel message, but we're trying to help you understand that there is a call to holiness in this gospel message. That a right understanding of the gospel, a right possession of faith, will lead you to a life that is true and pure and integral and righteous. There will be an integrity about you. There will be a humbleness about you just as there was when I was with you. We have to understand that this idea of imitating me and our God is at the foundation of this ministry to the Thessalonian believers. And so he says, just as I have been gentle, just as I have been humble, just as I have proclaimed the gospel, just as I have lived out the gospel, this is what we've done amongst you, this is what you're doing, and this is what distinguishes us between real faith and false faith. This is what distinguishes us between real gospel teaching and preaching and a false gospel that tickles the ears of the hearers. And so Paul says, I'm not here to tickle the ears of my hearers. I'm not here to to bait and switch you, to to help you, you know, to, to really help you deceive yourselves, to think that the gospel gives you a license to sin. I'm not here to preach to you any false ways. I'm here to appeal that you believe in the true gospel of God and that that impacts your daily living. 
You notice how he says that this is the message of the gospel that was entrusted to him. Entrusted to him there in verse 4. I love that language because Paul is saying that he is a steward. He is a steward of the call of God. That God has called him. That God has equipped him to be a gospel minister, to be a gospel preacher. But, but even more than that, that he has been called to be a Christian. That he is called not to please men, but to please God who what? Who test our hearts. Now I think that is a scary little phrase there from Paul. You know, I remember a couple of years ago at Vacation Bible School is. Uh, our, our dear friend Jason Brewer was, was preaching through uh, the letters of John. He was giving us really like a four-part overview of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. He, he had this illustration. And he said, what if a doctor could take a scan of your heart and see all the deceitfulness and the wickedness and the lies and the sin that was in your own heart? And you started cringing, right? I remember sitting probably two rows in front of Jim and Robin, and I was sitting there going... Boy, that would be a disaster. That would be an utter disaster if my daughter, of course, because it's Dr. Brown, that would be an utter disaster if Dr. Brown could see my heart and know of all the wickedness that exists in there. And then he says, how much more would it be for us to broadcast it on a TV screen as you walk into the fellowship hall? Here is a list of Matt's sins. And you cringe and you go that would be even more of a disaster. And yet, he said, we don't cringe for one second when we think that God can search out the depths of our heart because we're not ashamed for Him to see our sins. And how, how foolish is it? Because our God has, has stewarded us with the ability to hear the Gospel, to proclaim the Gospel, to live out the Gospel. And guess what, believer? You cannot hide your false ways and your sins and your iniquities from Him. And so He says, I want to prove myself to be a faithful believer. I want to prove myself to be a faithful steward of the Gospel. Not only that I might hear it, but that I might respond to it. Not only that I might respond to it, that I might proclaim it. And not only that I might proclaim it, but that I might live it. And that is the application for us when He says that that he is only here to please God rather than man. He is concerned only with what God thinks of him and his ministry. And he says, for their sake, for the Thessalonians' sake, I have committed myself to please God as I have ministered here amongst you. But there's a number of ways that Paul says that he's ministered there amongst the Thessalonian believers. I know I'm running short on time, but I want you to look at verses 7 and 8. Bear with me for a few more minutes as we uh, dig into the rest of our text through verse 12. If you look at verse 7 and 8, it says, But we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. Now he begins to unpack, doesn't he? 
how, how this message of the gospel shows itself in the love of the gospel. And he uses this analogy of a, of a nursing mother. He uses this analogy of a nursing mother. And you think about the gentleness and the intimacy of a nursing mother. There's a closeness between the baby and the mother who is nursing. And even there is a longing for that mother to nurse her child. Because she wants to feel that warmth. She wants the baby to feel that warmth. She wants to feel the gentleness and the intimacy that exists between her and her child. And of course that child is also aware of that moment in which they are loving or feeling that embracing love, that affection from the mom. You know, it's always a joke at our house with with baby Eliza that, that Beth is the baby's favorite person. I always say, you just wait until you're not nursing anymore. Because then her daddy's going to be her favorite person. Because what, is, what exists between a mom who is nursing and a, and a baby who is being nursed? It's an intimate connection. It's an affectionate connection. It's a gentle connection that exists between the mother and the child. Paul uses that analogy to show that that he has a gentleness, an affectionate heart towards these believers there in Thessalonica. He even says, it's so profound the way he says it, we were not only willing to share to you the gospel of God, but we were willing to give ourselves up to be with you because you have become very dear to us. You think about that. You think about the warmth, the affection, the gentleness in which Paul is speaking about these believers in Thessalonica with. And you you see how radically the gospel changes the heart of the Apostle Paul. Remember, we are talking about the same one who was on his way to Damascus so that he could put to death Christians. Remember, we're the one, or Paul's the one that we're talking about when he held the cloaks of the men who who stoned Stephen, he had a vehement hate in his heart towards those who are pursuing Christ. And the gospel has changed him. You know, it's that picture, Ezekiel 36, 26. His hardened, stoned heart is now made fleshly. It's loving. It's affectionate. Just like a mother who is nursing her child. That is the the warmth in which Paul adores these Thessalonian believers. But at the same time, he says that they have labored day and night because of their affection, because of their love for them. He says, I have so much affection, not only will I lay down my life, but literally what he's saying is, I'll do it for free. Now, I don't think this is a a, a theme that exists in the life of the Apostle Paul. But I think it is a situational circumstance or maybe a situational providence where the Thessalonian believers, they're not willing. uh, Willing is the wrong word. I think they were probably very willing if they were able to, to pay the apostles for their ministry amongst them, but they were not able. And so he says, so that it might not be a burden upon you, I'll spend all my nights making tents Selling tents so that all day I might preach the gospel to you. It shows you that love, right? But also notice this love pushes them to godliness there in the Thessalonian community. Verse 10. 
You are witnesses. And God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. Look at those adjectives again. Holy, righteous, blameless. You are my witnesses. As I lived with you, as I labored amongst you in Thessalonica, this is how I lived. Not only to be an example for you as believers, but to live in a community, I think Paul is talking about here, to live in such a way that there would not be one single person in all of Thessalonica who would have anything bad to say about Christ because of the way I live. That's why when we think about elders and deacons and we think about the qualifications of overseers, ministers, and pastors here in the church, we say that our people, our men, must be above reproach. Why must they be above reproach? So that there might not be one person who would have anything negative to say about them and to say about their Christ. It goes back to that idea of their message and their actions matching And so he says, as I labored amongst you, I sacrificially labored amongst you. And even in my sacrifice, I did it in such a way that I would be blameless before you and before a watching world. And isn't that the call of the Christian? Not only is it the call of of overseers, of pastors, of ministers, of elders or deacons. Isn't that the call of the Christian? That we would live in such a way that a watchful world would say, he loves Christ. She loves Christ. And he loves Christ and she loves Christ enough that it will change their lives. It will change the way they speak. It will change the way that they act. It will change the way that they shop for groceries in the grocery store. It will change the way that they radically love their neighbor. It will change the way that their bosses and nurses and teachers and fathers and mothers and siblings, it will change every aspect of their life so that they might say, they live for Jesus. They live for Jesus. In conclusion, I want you to notice there in at the end of the text here it is it says just like a father exhorts his children verse 11 and 12 we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory now we've seen the role of the mother right this illustration of the mother in the text. It's the nursing mother who meets them with gentleness, the baby with gentleness and affection. And in the same way, in a gentleness and love, the father, this new analogy that Paul introduces, the father is the one that exhorts and leads. He is responsible for. That is what Paul's saying. That just like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Notice what he's saying. Not only did we speak it, but we lived it. And not only did we live it, but we called, called you to imitate it. It's just like a good father in the home, right? Not only will he preach the gospel to his children, but he'll also live the gospel in front of his children. And he'll look at his children and he'll say, 
imitate me as I imitate Jesus. That's what Paul's saying. He's saying here that a, a ministry that is pleasing to God is a ministry that is not hypocritical. It's a ministry that proclaims the gospel and lives out the gospel for the fame of God's name in the church and in the watching world around them. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you for the opportunity to come uh, to this, your word. And we pray, Lord, that it would convict us where we need conviction, that it would encourage us where we need encouragement, that this would be a call for us to godliness, to holiness, that we would be a people who not only preach the gospel, proclaim the gospel, but people who live out the gospel so that we might say that the message of our mouths uh, coexist, parallel, our heart, and in complete harmony with the way in which we live. And so, Father, we pray that we would do this for the glory of your name and the advancement of your kingdom. Use even us, we pray, as, a, as ministers, as Christians who are pleasing to thee. And we pray these things in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.